You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This guy on my left is uh, one of science fiction's the jewels in the crown of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, you know him as the author of The Last Unicorn, A Fine and Private Place, most recently Tamsin, I believe. Well, it was the m- most recent novel, yes. His most recent novel. Um, he's, the win- he's won the Nebula Award, the Locus Award, the, um, well, let's see, what else? Certainly the World Fantasy Award. No, the, actually, no, the Hugo. The Hugo. Never did get the World Fantasy. He never got the World Fantasy Award, but he did win the Seventeen Magazine Award. <laughs> I was, I was very young. He was quite young. Um, gives me great pleasure to introduce Peter Beagle. Thank you, Cherry. Since my mother did not raise any complete idiots, I'm not a, about to follow that story (laughs) with really any sort of conventional fantasy. The simplest thing for me to do, and I'm going to do it, is to read two short pieces. One was written strictly as a children's story, meant to be one. It's a long story about why it hasn't yet been published as a children's book. And the other, which I'll read after that, was written for Ellen Datlow's anthology, Troll's Eye View which is a collection of short stories, fairy tales told over again from the point of view of the villain of the fairy tale. But this first one is called The Best Worst Monster. From the tips of his twisted spiky horns all the way down to his jagged claws, the monster was without any doubt the biggest, ugliest, most horrible creature ever made. Since his master had put them together out of spare parts lying around the house, Some bits of him were power tools and old television sets, while other bits were made of plastic and wood and stone. His fiery eyes were streaked red and yellow, like the autumn moon, and even his ears and his hair had claws. There, his master said proudly, aren't you a fine fellow? Am I? the monster asked. He had just seen himself in the mirror and wasn't sure. You certainly are, said his master. Then he sent the monster off to stamp the post office flat, because the mailman never delivered any nice letters. This was a real pleasure for the monster, with all the mail flying in every direction and boxed packages crunching like toast under his feet. It was even better the next day when his master ordered him to use his great claws to pull the town's dance pavilion to pieces, just because no girl ever asked his master to dance, to dance with her. This, that was as much fun as a birthday party. He tore down the strings of bright-colored lights and chased the musicians away and jumped up and down on the bandstand until all that remained was a lot of tiny splinters and a few small shreds of sheet music. The monster was sorry when there was nothing left to smash because he would have loved to do it all over again. That night, though, while his master slept, the monster sat outside in the cold, clear air and noticed something that troubled him. He could see quite as well at night as at day, as in day, so it was easy for him to look down the rocky slope of his master's home 
and study the town curled up in the valley below. He could count every leaf and tile, every window and chimney, and he could see the small dark gaps where the post office and dance pavilion had stood. They were like two hollow eyes in a mask staring back at him. The monster didn't know much, being only two days old, but he knew that he didn't like how he was feeling. He wondered if there was something wrong with him. Monsters are afraid of wondering, so when morning came, he went to his master and said, Something is happening to me. I don't know what it is, but it frightens me. Maybe you ought to order me to build something today, just for the change, just until this feeling goes away. I'm sure it will go away. His master was horrified and very angry, too. I can't believe this, he screamed at the monster. Are you growing a soul in that unspeakable patchwork body of yours? Well, I'll take care of that and right now. Whereupon he sprayed the monster from horns to claws to antennae-tipped tail with a nasty-smelling mixture called Soloway, which he had invented himself for just such occasions. <laughs> After that, he opened up the monster's intake valves and poured in gallons of another potion called Solbegon. Then he fed the monster an enormous pill that didn't have a name and which stuck in the monster's throat. He had to climb up on a tall ladder and pound the monster on his back until it went down. There, he said, that should do it. The soul's no trouble to get rid of if you catch it early. I still feel all funny, the monster mumbled. But his master told him not to be a fool and ordered him to go out and pull up the train tracks because the whistle of the train was half a note sharp. <laughs> and while you're at it, smash up the bakery. I practically broke a tooth on a walnut and a cupcake yesterday. Go! <laughs> From that morning on, no matter how hard the monster tried to please his master, things kept going wrong. Sometimes he actually found himself being kind in a monstrous sort of way, like not trampling a home all the way flat, or making a lot of noise before he arrived so people would have time to run away. Once he even ran away himself to keep from being sent to squash a whole school where his master was never asked to come speak at graduation. <laughs> but he couldn't stay away because he got lonely. And that worried him even more because he knew that wicked, soulless monsters were never, ever supposed to feel lonely. Then one evening, while the monster was watching the stars and wishing he were someone else, his master called for him. After giving him an extra large dose of soul away, his master smiled and ordered him to go into town and find a poet named Beppo the Beggar. When he found him, the monster was supposed to step on him just as though he were a bakery or a post office. Why? Because he made up a song about me and I don't like it. Go and get him, not his house, mind, him. So the monster trudged unhappily away to trample a poet. He found Beppo the beggar lying in a riverbank with his hands behind his head, watching the sky and making up a poem. Beppo's little dog, who was called Pumpernickel, was fast asleep by his side, covered by Be Beppo's ragged old coat. Beppo's poem began like this. We fished together every night, my Uncle Moon and I. We bait our hooks with dreams and throw them in the sky. He looked over at Pumpernickel to see what his best friend thought of the poem so far, but the dog did not even open his eyes. Beppo sighed and chuckled. He tucked the coat closer around his pet and continued, My Uncle Moon, he catches stars all burning white and blue, but I keep angling for your heart. No other fish will do. It was then, only then, that he looked up and saw the monster's foot poised high over him, hiding the night sky and all the stars. Beppo did not leap up screaming and begging for his life. Instead, he turned to Pumpernickel and shook him gently awake, saying, Run away now, little one. Take care of yourself and remember me. 
The monster stood on one foot, not moving, not saying a word. Pumpernickel got to his feet, looked at Beppo with his head tilted to one side, and then trotted off into the darkness. Beppo the beggar lay down again, smiling cheerfully up at that huge foot ready to squash him like a bug. He asked politely, Would you mind very much letting me finish my poem? I think there's only one more verse. The monster nodded. Beppo closed his eyes and considered, tracing words in the air with his right forefinger. After a moment, he went on. But if I caught you on my line or in my net below, no matter you're my one desire, I'd always let you go. He looked straight at the monster again and said, Not great for a last poem, but then I'm not exactly a great poet. He spread his arms out wide, beckoning the foot down. It's a great river bank anyway, he said, and he laughed. The monster's foot came down, not on Beppo the beggar, but very slowly and gently on the ground next to him. Neither of them said a word. But after a moment, the monster turned and started back the way he had come, along the road and up the stony hill to his master's house. He stamped along as noisily as he could, and for the first time in his life he sang, making up his own music, louder and louder and louder, like a marching song. I don't know if I have a soul, I don't know if I want a soul, but whatever Beppo the beggar has, I want one of those. He was a really terrible singer. His master heard him coming from a long way off, and he knew exactly what all that racket meant. He stayed just long enough to grab up some monster-making tools in his one good suit, and then he ran out the back door of his house before the mon his monster even got there. And whatever became of him, nobody knows. But everybody in town can tell you what became of his monster. That very day, the monster set about rebuilding everything he had ever smashed to pieces. When he was done with that, he built a house in town for himself, a very big house, with a back garden and a birdbath. After a time, people began to ask him to come to dinner. He always went and was careful not to eat too much or stay too long. He even learned to dance in the new pavilion in a monsterish sort of way. From time to time, though, he still felt lonely. On those nights, he would sit on the hilltop where his master's house lay abandoned and ask himself questions with no answers. Do I have a soul? Do I only think I have a soul? Does it matter? And then, after waiting just the right amount of time, because that's what friends do, Beppo the beggar would call up to him with a cheery hello, and Beppo's little dog, Pumpernickel, would jump up in his huge lap to lick his frightful face. And the monster would smile with his fangs and his forked tongue and his puzzled, happy heart. And he'd pick Beppo and Pumpernickel up and carry them back down into town on his shoulders, singing dreadfully all the way. And that's my one honest-to-God children's story. This is... A bit different. Just a bit. This is called Up the Down Beanstalk, A Wife Remembers. Special to the Cumulonimbus Weekly Chronicle, as recounted by Mrs. Eunice Giant, 72 Fairweather Lane, east of the Bean, Sussex Overhead. He seemed like such a nice boy. And he was a nice boy, really, for all the vexation he caused. They always are. I've never eaten a bad one yet. Oh, there's some don't care for the crunchiness, I know that, and there's others who complain about that sort of salty aftertaste. But you clean the palate with a couple of firkins of ale, and where's the harm? That's what I say. No, 
I like boys just fine, always have. The funny thing is that poor old Harvey didn't like them, not really. Oh, he'd eat one now and then if we were having dinner at someone's house. I mean, you have to be polite, don't you? But for himself, no. You could keep that man perfectly happy with a couple of cows, a couple of horses smothered in sheep the way my mother used to do them. He loved that. Which wasn't exactly what you might call labor-saving, because after all, cows and horses don't come running to you, do they? I mean, you have to go out and get them. And then you have to carry them all the way home, not like people. You see what I'm getting at? It's funny the way most of them think that boy, Jack, his name was, I keep getting their names mixed up, most of them think that Jack was the first to climb up here. Truth of it is, you can't hardly keep them away. See, a beanstalk, they've just got to climb it. It's their nature, I suppose, like kittens with a curtain. Practically all over the place they are some seasons. What else can you do but eat them? I used to tell Harvey, I don't know how many times, I warned him to get that beanstalk trimmed back so it wouldn't be quite so noticeable. But you know how many are. They put things off and put them off, and then they tell you you're nagging. I think now if I'd only nagged him a bit more, who knows? Oh, well, mustn't complain. They tell some story down there, a whole business of magic beans and trading the family cow to a crafty peddler, something like that. Now there's a nonsense for you. What happened? The cow was wandering loose. Whose fault was that, I'd like to know. And Harvey brought her home so I could have breakfast in bed. Of course, that boy naturally, naturally followed her tracks right straight to the beanstalk, and maybe he saw her back legs or something vanishing up into the sky. That could be. Anyway, he went right up after her and pops into my kitchen because of the way Harvey trained the beanstalk to grow. I call that clever of him, don't you? Now, what I always do, I scatter things like rosemary, thyme, salt, and pepper, and a bit of basil all around that hole in the floor. That way, they're already seasoned. You can just whisk them right onto the grill. But this Jack, my goodness, he was so quick. I had to chase him all around the kitchen with a broom, if you'll believe it, before I finally got him backed into a corner. And then, now I know you won't believe this, the dear boy looks up at me just as calm as he please with his little hands on his hips, and he says, Where's my cow, you thieving giant? I want my cow back. Cheeky, I ask you. I ate your cow on a breakfast tray, I says, and a tough old thing she was, too. And we'll be having you for lunch as an appetizer, so behave yourself. None, um, none of that grinding his bones to make my bread, by the by. I mean, who'd ever want to make bread like that, all gritty and nasty? Anyway, that Jack, he says right back to me, bold as brass, what about that hen of yours, the one that lays the golden eggs? I consider that fair exchange for my cow. Golden eggs? I says, golden eggs? Whoever put that in your quaint little head? The things they believe about us down there. I says, what would Harvey and I ever want with an egg we couldn't scramble? Now hop up on that grill and don't be fussing at me so. Because I was already starting to get one of my heads. You know how I am. It's their voices, I think. That must be it. So shrill, they just go right through my temples. But do they care? You've got to hope. Well then, what about that harp? Jack demands, still just as cheeky as he can be. I know all about that singing harp, and it'll talk to you too and tell you the future. Hand it over and I'll be gone, and we'll say no more about it. Now, you can't help admiring impudence like that, can you? I know I can't. But no harp, no hen, I says, and if you aggravate me any more than you already have, I'm going to be really vexed with you. I've never known an appetizer to cause so much trouble. I'm sorry, sometimes you just have to be firm with them. 
Now, all this, all this while, mind you, I've been moving closer, step by the tiniest step I could manage, me not, exactly, me not being exactly built to sneak up on things. But he was too sharp for that. He zinged and darted around that kitchen like a fly. I hate it when they do that. They never taste nearly as good when they've been overexerting themselves. And if by chance you step on them or you lose your temper and swat them, well, you can just forget it. You know that as well as I do. There's just no salvaging a squashed human. I'd have called for Harvey to help me, but I knew where he was, off with his great boon companion, Claude, helping him to fix his septic tank or drain a field, something like that. I have, personally, never been able to stand Claude. He's loud and he's extremely vulgar and he's never clean, not what you could call clean, and I always thought him a terrible influence on Harvey. But there, try to say that to a man and see what he gets you. The more I expressed my opinion of Claude, the closer friends they became. I should have known better than to say a single word, but honesty's my weakness, always has been. Anyway, I didn't waste my time looking around for Harvey. As much as he and Claude drank when they got together, he'd not have been much use anyway. But that Jack, I was closing in on him, narrowing down his escape route. There's a trick to it, I'll show you. But I couldn't ever quite get my hands on him, and he couldn't get past me to the hole in the floor either. So there we were, both just dancing round and round, you might say, and it would have been funny, except that I was starting to get really hungry. It's a blood sugar thing, I think. For goodness sake, we can't keep this up forever, I said to him. I was puffing a bit, I don't deny it, but he was losing speed too by then. Why can't we just sit down for a moment and get our breaths and talk like people? Because you're not people, ma'am, says he, not giving an inch. You're a monster, and you'll crunch me up if I take my eyes off you for a solitary minute. Deny it if you can, monster lady. I'm not either a monster, says I, straight back in his face. I mean, that really hurt my feelings, him saying that, as I'm sure you'd have been hurt the same. I'm big, yes, and I've got dietary needs like you or anyone else, but that certainly does not make me any monster. Yes, it does, ma'am, Jack says, flat like that. He still wouldn't let me come any nearer, and he obviously wasn't about to trust me even one pennyworth. So I did the only thing I could do. I just sat down myself, whether he sat or no. No, I stayed close enough to that hole so that I could block him with my leg if I missed with a grab, just in case he were really thought we were all as stupid as the stories say. And by and by, well, I won't say exactly, he, won't, he exactly sat, but he did sort of crouch down on his heels. Eh, dear, what it is to have young legs. And we did chat in a bit of a way. I asked after his mother, I remember, and about his brothers and sisters. If, about his brothers and sisters. They have them in absolute litters, you know. And did he climb lots of things, or was it just beanstalks? Making conversation, that's all. And he was actually answering my questions, most of them, and even asking one or two of his own in his own cheeky, in his cheeky way. Would you believe it? He wondered where we ever got underpants in our size. When who should come lumbering in but Harvey? Harvey with Claude right behind him. Harvey and Claude laughing and bellowing with their filthy great boots absolutely thick with mud, if that's what it was, and tracking whole squishy black chunks of something all over my nice clean kitchen floor. I could have wept. I just could have wept. But I didn't. I screamed at them to get out of my kitchen, and of course old Claude was gone the moment I opened my mouth. Harvey was so drunk that he'd never have caught sight of Jack if the boy only stayed still. But of course he was up on his feet and scurrying along the wall, wall dodging every which way like a good un. Harvey let out a yell, I'll get him, I'll get him! And he made this wild swipe and Jack actually ran right between his legs. 
and I couldn't help it. I just wanted to cheer. I'd never tell anybody that but you, but I did. I really, really wanted to cheer. Well, Harvey kept yelling, I'll get him for you, I'll get him. He couldn't have pulled up his own mucky socks, the mess he was, clumping and stamping and scattering more dirt with every step. And that Jack, he could see how distracted I was, and quicker than scat, he died for that hole in the floor. Never mind cows, hens, harps, whatever, that boy was on his way home. And he'd have made it, too, except Harvey somehow lunged and blocked him away, and what happened, Jack lost his balance and sort of skidded in the linoleum. He didn't quite fall down, but he was waving his arms, trying to keep his feet under him, and Harvey would have had him in another second. Another second, that's all it would have taken, even for Harvey. Now, I'm not going to swear that I did it out of spite. Well, I did. And I'm not even going to tell you that I did it a purpose, because I don't know to this day. I don't. I'm just going to tell you what happened, which was that Harvey lunged again, and he... All right. He somehow tripped over my foot and went straight down through that hole. Harvey was always tripping over things. It's a long way down, but we heard the crash. And we stood there, Jack and I... Do you know I never did get his last name? We stood looking at each other for minutes, hours, I've no idea. The boy finally said, well, I guess I'll be going. And that's it, says I, that's it? You break into a lady's house, you call her a thief and a monster, you murder her husband, and now you guess you'll be off somewhere? I thought better of your manners than that, I don't know why. Go on then, run, all, run along with you by all means, I'm sure I don't care. Jack looked flustered as he never had when I was chasing him with my broom. Well, ma'am, he says, what would you like me to do? I'll surely do what I can to oblige you. You could stop for a cup of tea, I answered him straight out. That's what civilized people do when they've killed somebody's husband. <laughs> so he stayed on for his tea, sitting by the hole with his legs dangling down. A bit rude, I must say, and me too stricken by my loss to have much of an appetite. And we chatted some, and he apologized for saying I was a thief, since it wasn't me stole his cow. And I told him, please, to give my best regards to his lady mother. And he even helped me clean up a bit, best way he could. He said he'd get the whole village together to bury Harvey. And I asked him to say a few words about Harvey being such a good speller and a very good social dancer. And he said he would. I mean, Harvey had his faults, no denying that, but fair's fair. No, I haven't remarried, nor likely neither. I'm quite content as I am, thank you, and well enough I'm occupied with my embroidery and my reading. And people do keep climbing my old beanstalk, no matter how poor Jack runs all over warning them not to, so there's any amount of company, and I hardly ever have to eat out. It's princes, mostly. They don't taste any better than anyone else, no matter what you hear. And once there was this whole bunch of dwarves, the dearest little fat fellows, Perfect timing, that was, because my bridge circle was meeting over here that day. <laughs> so I stay interested, because that's what's important, being interested. But I do miss Harvey sometimes, I'll admit it. He was always so good at getting the oven going on a cold morning. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>